Many of you have uh, been asking me about my experience in Israel that uh, I had the privilege of going on with some people from this church. And, and this morning we're going to talk about that. And there were so many different highlights and things like that. And, I, and my weekly email that goes out every Friday, I made a commitment that this was not going to be a stereotypical slideshow. All right, so I promise you that. If after the service you found it was a stereotypical slideshow, please just take me aside and say, you lied to us or whatever, you know. So, but, but, uh, but there were so many different highlights that happened. And one of the big highlights, and it happens in, in our lives as we come to trust and place our trust in Jesus Christ, is that we, we get baptized. And so one of the evenings that uh, we were there, uh, there, I had the privilege of baptizing two people. We caught it on video, and, uh, and it, was, uh, it was an encounter that God just did some neat stuff. You'll recognize one of the people in it, Jill Stein. She was baptized, and then a friend of mine from Scottsdale came out, and his name's John Taylor. And John, for those who are on the trip with us, they found out that John has more energy than Lorraine Aguirre, and uh, and that's saying an awful lot. And so he's going all the time, but but uh, he as well was baptized. And so we'd like to share those those two events with you now. So I invite you to check out these videos. <laughs> so it was a great experience, and, and, and Jill's thanking everybody uh, doesn't just go for the team that was there. It went for everybody who was on, uh, everybody involved in this church, and uh, so that evening, we're in the Sea of Galilee, and it's dark, and what you saw in the distance was Tiberius, and, and the reason why we were able to have light was because everybody walked out there with their headlamps on and uh, shined it up, and it was, it was fantastic, and so lives were changed, and lives continue to be changed, not just in Israel, but everywhere, and I invite you, as we take a look at this, as we consider what God did in my life as well as in all of our lives in a variety of ways in Israel, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. And as we go to Mark chapter 1, a couple things just to make you aware of when it comes to Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel, unlike the other three gospels, Mark's gospel starts at a dead sprint. 
There is no, let's ease into this. Let's talk about a genealogy. Let's talk about Jesus' birth. Let's talk about this or that. Or let's go real philosophical and, and talk about the word becoming flesh. Mark doesn't do any of that. Mark simply hits the ground running. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then boom, he's gone. And when I mean he's running, he's running rapidly. And in a matter of verses, what we come to find out in Mark's, in Mark's gospel is this, is that Jesus is, is doing amazing things. When we come to this place in, in Mark chapter 1 that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus has already driven out, he's already driven out demons from, a, from one individual. And then as if that wasn't enough, he then goes and heals a number of people. So many so that, that Mark doesn't even include the number. People were just coming out of the woodwork to encounter Jesus Christ. And so in Mark's gospel, he wants us to realize that Jesus always makes a difference in people's lives. He's doing great work. And so we see this, starting at verse 35, says this. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Father, we pray now as we take a look at this word and as I share these experiences uh, that happened in Israel, it's my prayer that by the power of your Holy Spirit that it would not be a typical slideshow, that people would, that all of us would understand more clearly that you change lives all over the world and that you continue changing lives here in Salinas. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes so that we can see you more clearly. Open our ears that we would understand you more fully. Open our minds that in the process that we would be able to comprehend what it means to be Christ-following people, and that you would open our hearts in such a way that our lives are transformed. Lord, it's my prayer that no one would hear anything that I say, but only what it is that you want them to hear, that you need them to hear, that you desire them to hear and to understand. And Lord, if there's anyone in here this morning who does not know you, it is my prayer that the message that you shared on the streets and the roads and the fields of Israel, that that message that was shared 2,000 years ago would be a message that pierces hearts today and that you would continue that great rescue that was started so long ago. Lord, we love you and we thank you and may you receive all glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick it up in verse 36 where Simon and his companions went to look for him and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. As I consider what happened in, in Israel, it, it isn't something, uh, it isn't something uh, new or anything like that. One of the things that so grabbed me while we were in Israel was the people. People were everywhere especially in Jerusalem, it was like, we called it, we, there were so many tour buses everywhere, we called it Busageddon. I mean, it was just crazy. But everywhere you went, there are people everywhere. You heard different languages from all over the world. English, frankly, was, was, 
was one of the rare languages that rare languages that you heard as all these people go to Jerusalem, all these people go to Israel. But my point is this, God has always had, always had a desire for humanity and interacting with humanity. The story of God interacting with humanity is a long one. As a matter of fact, if you were to open your Bible on page one, you'd find this out. God is interacting with humanity before humanity even realizes it's on the earth. Our God desires us to understand his great plans for us all the time. And you read this, and as we look at this passage in, in, in Mark chapter 1, when Simon and his companions come out, and their first statement is, everyone is looking for you. I've said this multiple times. People matter to God. They just do. And one of the things that struck me was, was that God reveals that in so many different ways. And, and one of the things that hit me again and again and again in Israel was it felt like everywhere you went in Israel, something significant happened. It helped me understand better this group of people that I got to hang out with. As I was hearing from them about their experience, and Bill Murray said this, and, and he's on the team, and he was sort of like a resident comedian, okay, and you guys know who Bill is. He said this, and I thought this was one of the most insightful things I'd heard from, from anybody in, in quite a while, and he said this, I came here loving the Bible, and now I love the Bible all the more. The reason why he's making that type of a statement is because he's understanding more and more how God interacts with humanity. He's been interacting with humanity for a long time. And like I said, everywhere you go, there was some type of significant event that happened. And we read this encounter that David has with King Saul back in the Old Testament, where, where Saul is in the cave, and David is back in the cave. And for me, I'm sitting there thinking, man, this is, how did he pull this off? But yet we went to a cave in Israel, and this is the cave that we were in, and this thing is just massive. And so I came to understand how God can use these events and help us understand how he cares for them. As I saw the breadth and the depth and the height of this cave, I sat there going, it's easy to understand now how David was able to pull this off. But God is constantly wanting to do something in all of our lives. And it's significant. That's why I use the word significant. It's significant that he wants to work in your life as well as other people's lives. It's real easy to think that we're just a number. It's real easy to think that we don't have what it takes for God to interact with us. And yet, the fact is this. God has been interacting with humanity and wants the best for humanity all the time. We believe that to be true here. We believe that to be true. How do we know? We gather every Sunday. We reach out to those that are around us. If we didn't believe that to be true, we would not do Streets of Bethlehem. If we believe that, if we didn't believe that to be true, we would not have a block party. We would not have trunk and treat. We would not offer Awana. We would not offer Bible studies. We would not offer anything because it would be a lie. 
but we believe it to be true that God wants to interact with everyone, not just in Israel, but he wants to interact with anyone. People you see on Blanco that are driving by here at the speed of light, he wants to interact with them. People you see at Alisal, people you see at Abba Street, people that you see on Sanborn Street, people that you see on Baranda, on Davis, people that you drive by or get driven by on the 101, people that, that are on Main Street, both South Main Street and North Main Street, people are everywhere, and God desires to interact with them. He desires to do that all the time. And, and I was so impressed, this was so impressed upon me as we kept going through Israel. People were everywhere, and people were, were having these interactions, and in languages that I didn't fully understand, and I sat there going, that's going to be heaven one day. For those of you that think that heaven is going to be an English-only English speaking experience, wake up. <laughs> it's going to be multilingual multicultural, and it is going to be phenomenal. The reason being is because God interacts with humanity all the time. So the apostles come up to him, and they're all excited because they're on the ground floor of this movement, and they can't believe what's going on. Jesus' popularity is going through the roof, and they're enjoying this. These are a bunch of fishermen and, and frankly, some, some Hebrew school rejected individuals that are now on the ground floor of this. They can't believe what's going on. And they scream and they clamor and they say, everybody's looking for you. Look at what's going on. This is awesome. And look at Jesus' response in verse 38. <laughs> Jesus replied. Now keep in mind, his popularity is through the roof. He says this, let's go somewhere else. You're an apostle. You're going, what? This is great. Why are we going to go anywhere else? We have everything we need right now. We're, this thing's moving forward. Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. The message of Jesus Christ was not for some small crew of individuals. The message of Jesus Christ was for everyone, as I just said, God interacting with humanity all the time. But now we come to this place where Jesus has a decision to make, and the decision is this. I could stay here and people could continue to come to me, but that's not why I came. The message that I proclaim is one that needs to be out there for everyone. Remember what I said to you earlier about Mark's gospel, that it's a sprint. Well, part of the reason why it's a sprint is because Jesus is on the move. He's on the move. That message of God desiring the best for humanity, that message of God caring for humanity needs to get out there. Part of the reason why Jesus Christ's popularity was going through the roof was people were encountering this amazing, this amazing individual who they did not fully grasp who he was at the time. That he's proclaiming to them a message of purpose, a message of redemption, a message that changes lives. And that same message that was proclaimed back then that brought healing to people, that brought restoration to people, is the same message that's being proclaimed today. 
As I was out walking this morning, one of the things that struck me was this. How is it that the message of Jesus Christ, a message that has transformed lives for millennia, how is it that we can find that message blasé today? How is it that the message that Jesus Christ came into this world and informed us that God truly cares for us, that he wants the best for us, that we can be forgiven, that we can be restored, how is it that message now no longer moves the meter in many of our lives? How is it that I get more wrapped up about the fact that my cell phone is on the fritz right now than I get wrapped up about the fact that Jesus Christ cares greatly for me. Jesus Christ's message, the one that he said he needed to get out, is a message that is still relevant today. If you're here this morning thinking that it's not that big of a deal that God cares for you, or do you even believe that he doesn't care for you, that he doesn't want the best for you, I'm here to tell you that message that he proclaimed 2,000 years ago is a message that is still relevant today, and it is still true today. One of the highlights for me was getting to preach what I'd call a sermonette on the mountain where Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount, and that's what, that's what this picture is. I think this is where I, 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 I made a joke, obviously, and it worked. Unlike here, where they don't work. But on that mountain 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ shared a message that revolutionized the way people will look and interact with God. As a matter of fact, in 2020, Lord willing, post-Easter, we're going to do an entire series on the Sermon on the Mount. This revolutionary message that Jesus Christ brought that changed people's lives. And so we're going to take a look at that. And and this message, part of what made this message so viable back then and so powerful back then was that it was a message that proclaimed freedom to all who heard. From the wealthy and well-to-do to the downtrodden and outcast, the message was the same. It was a message of freedom that you no longer needed to look for your identity in what you had or in what you didn't have. You could find your identity in Jesus Christ and His amazing grace. And it's a message of freedom. It's not one that binds us up. It, it always cracks me up when people say, well, I really don't want to know about Jesus or I don't want to know Jesus because He's going to really make my life boring. I, uh, he frees us. I've lost count how many people I've had come into my office or, or interact with me over the years that have said the following or something along the following lines. That Jesus Christ 
has given me hope every day. That I used to be addicted to this or I used to be addicted to that and Jesus Christ, since giving my life to Christ, yeah, the battle is still there with addiction, but yet Jesus Christ has come into my life and he says, I have come to set you free. When you are set free, it changes your life. When you are set free, you no longer view people the same way. You no longer view your life the same way. You say, I'm free, Lord, use me for whatever you'd like to do. Are you free this morning? Are you free this morning? Are you free in such a way that you can live life more fully? On the last day that we were in Galilee and outside that area, we stopped at this place called Magdala. Mary Magdalene had this encounter with Jesus Christ. She, she had multiple demons within her and Jesus Christ enters into her life and is rescued. She's freed from this. And so we stop in at Magdala and our professor said, this is an important place. This is an amazing place. And I thought, listen, every place that we've been to is amazing. What's going to make this any more amazing? And he said, just wait. And so in Magdala, they're building this uh, retreat center, and it's filled with nothing. I mean, it, it's so Christ-following, and, and so it, it gets the essence of what Jesus Christ is doing and did back then. And so we enter into this hallway or this entryway, for lack of a better term. And, and remember, I said, everywhere you go in Israel, there's something significant that happened. Well, so we're in Magdala, where Mary, is, Mary has her life completely transformed by Jesus Christ. And we walk into this entryway. And in this entryway, and it was very, very profound what they did. There were eight pillars around this entryway. The eight pillars represented the seven, each pillar represented the seven women that Jesus Christ interacted with in the, in the Gospels. Remember what I said, Jesus Christ's message is one that brings freedom. Back in Jesus' day, women weren't free. They were property. But yet when they encountered Jesus Christ, all of a sudden they were freed up. They were told that they have meaning, that they were told that they had purpose, that they were told that you matter. And so what this church has done is that it has these, you go into this area, you have these pillars, and I, I, I couldn't find a picture of it. I know I took one. But each pillar represented one of those women, and then there was this eighth pillar. And this was my Magdala moment. The pillar had no names on it. And the reason why it had no names, and this is what got me, was because that pillar is in honor of all the women, and not just women, but people who are oppressed that need the freedom found in Jesus Christ. And it broke me. How many people do we see every day that need that freedom? 
How many people do we see every day who have had some type of abuse happen to them? How many people are out there that need to know this message of freedom? And I looked at that pillar, and I didn't worship it or anything like that. But I said, Lord, give me a heart for people who need to be free. And a few tears came down my cheeks because that's what we're to be about. That's what we're to be about. And and what what strikes me and, and the relevancy of that experience back there, that experience in God's word and the relevancy that it has for today is that that message continues to be true. Who in your life right now is in an abusive relationship? Who in your life right now needs freedom from Jesus, freedom brought by Jesus Christ? All of us know people that are going through stuff. And my prayer is that we would pay attention to those opportunities that he gives us to proclaim this great freedom message that he proclaimed. So it was the people that got me. It was this message that, that Jesus Christ proclaimed. And then lastly, and this was the biggie, it was the decision that he made. In your Bibles, I invite you to turn to, Ma- to Mark chapter 14. And we'll pick it up at verse 32. And it was this decision, this decision that makes so, so much of a difference. The title of this message was that to walk, you need to take steps, or it involves beginning with steps or something like that, and we walked everywhere. I looked at how many steps we put in on multiple days, and it averaged about 25,000. We walked about 11 miles a day. It was crazy. What's even crazier is I gained weight I don't understand. I really don't understand. It's like, what is going on? Well, and then the people on the team would just say, well, did you see what you ate? Yes, I did. I saw it and I enjoyed it, you know, so. We walked, and Jesus walked. And as he walked, he walked to a place that he knew he would eventually need to go. In Luke's Gospel, and we're not going to look at that passage, but in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 51, says this, Jesus set out resolutely for Jerusalem. And in Luke's Gospel, from that point on, you see, and, and Luke does such a great job, he just says, he stops here, does some stuff, he stops here, does some stuff. And the point that Luke is making is, notice that Jesus is getting closer to Jerusalem. It's a very creative way to communicate what's going on there. And we come to Mark 14, starting at verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. 
Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and he prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. For Jesus Christ, he walks everywhere. It makes sense. They didn't have cars and things like that, but he walked everywhere. And everywhere that Jesus Christ went, he had a mission in mind. He had a message in mind, and I've shared that with you. It was a message of freedom. It was the reason why his popularity skyrocketed, and it was also the reason why at Mark chapter 8, his popularity begins to decline. It's the reason why Jesus Christ came to this place. The walking hesitated in the Garden of Gethsemane. We were there in the Garden of Gethsemane. We saw the trees and we saw what's going on and, and we saw these, I mean, these things are ginormous. And it was here where the walking hesitated. Notice I used the word hesitated. I don't want you to think that it became some permanent stop. It hesitated because Jesus Christ had a decision to make. No one in history has ever had a bigger decision to make. And we talk about this every single time. This is at the Church of, of All Nations, and this is their depiction, and it's up on, the, up on the ceiling there, of what's going on at this moment for Jesus Christ, this moment of, of crisis. It's a decision that is going to change everything. It's a decision that if he goes one way, it means continued bondage for everyone, and if he goes another way, it means ultimate freedom for all who call on him. And this is what struck me as we were at the Garden of Gethsemane, was, and, it's, and it's part of the battle that happened in the Garden, and it's not told very often. And I can sort of understand why it's not told that often. But it's part of the battle that isn't told very often, and it's this. At this moment where Jesus Christ says these words, and look at what he says here, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Notice Jesus Christ doesn't simply pray this prayer one time or two times. He prays it three times. It means this is monumental. In Luke's gospel, we're told that he was under so much stress that his sweat was like drops of blood. He almost died because of the amount of stress that he's on. He almost dies because of the decision and the gravity of this decision that he's going to make. And we read that and say, man, that must have been a difficult decision for him. Yes, it was a difficult decision, but we miss out on a few things. In that garden, in that garden, 
he looks up and he sees this. Those walls. The walls surrounding Jerusalem. And as he sees this, and he's in this garden, he knows on the other side of the wall what awaits him. What awaits him is mockery. What awaits him is a beating. What awaits him is crucifixion. And at that same place in the garden, you have the wall here, but all he would have to do is go up a hill and enter into this place, the wilderness. Absolute desolation. And if he enters into the wilderness, he's gone forever. No one would ever be able to find him. This thing is vast. You can't see the end of it. It just goes on and on and on. And Jesus Christ at that garden when he's saying, please, if there's a better way, if there's a different way, please let's do this. And I'm I'm struggling with this decision. I want to make the decision that brings glory to you, Lord. But this, Father, but this is really hard. And And I see this wall and I see this wilderness. And here's what hit me. Was that Jesus Christ, in a matter of 600 seconds, can be in the wilderness and gone forever. Just gone. Or he can go to the other side of that wall and bring us eternal life. The biggest decision humanity has ever faced happened in that garden 600 seconds versus eternal life he is conflicted because he's fully human he feels stress he experiences that but he's also fully God and he knows he has to do this Many of you here this morning feel like you're in the Garden of Gethsemane. You have big decisions to make and you don't know what to do. You have a decision to make that looks so easy and, and, it would, and people would say, man, that makes a whole lot of sense. But yet you also know that there's this difficult decision here that's looking you in the face. And what I want you to know is this, is that Jesus Christ understands that stress. And so in the middle of that garden, in the middle of that experience, he says this, enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, and notice notice this, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. He made that decision. And Jesus Christ chose to walk through the valley rather than going to the mountaintop and going into the wilderness. He chose to go into that valley and he chose sacrifice so that we would never be alone.
When he made that decision, when he made that decision, you were on his mind, I was on his mind, and he said, I've got to go through with this. If you're here this morning thinking that Jesus Christ doesn't care, I want you to consider the following. That he made a decision 2,000 years ago that took him to a cross. Made a decision 2,000 years ago that took him to a cross and where he exclaimed on that cross, it is finished. He made a decision 2,000 years ago that took him to a cross that he proclaimed, it is finished. He drew his last breath and that was it. It was over. He was then taken off that cross and he was put in a tomb. But here's the great thing. The tomb could not contain him. He rose from the dead. He decided for you. What decision will you make about him? No one, no one denies the existence of Jesus Christ and the fact that he came and lived among us. No one. What they argue about is what it means. And we can point with great confidence that there's an empty tomb. An empty tomb proclaiming that this one who was beaten, who was crucified, that made a decision for humanity, made a decision for salvation, that he is alive. He's not dead. There's this discussion in Israel and especially in Jerusalem about where the tomb is. And it's ongoing. Archaeologists continue arguing about it and things like that. And one of the, one of the people in this discussion said this, what difference does it make where the tomb is? Because he's not there. That decision to do what he did changes everything. I don't do this very often, but I'm going to invite the band up, or the worship team up, I should say. And one of the things that I don't do very often, and it's something that the Lord and I are talking about, and I'm praying about, is providing opportunities for people to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. I make an assumption that since this church has been in existence for 144 plus years, that people know Jesus Christ. And the Lord has been nailing me saying, you don't know that to be true. And so as we sing these songs, we're going to sing two more songs. If today is the day where you decide to say yes to Jesus Christ, to decide, yes, I want him in my life, I invite you, I invite you at the end of the service to track me down or to track Rob down or one of the elders. It's Don Meister, it's Don Desmond, it's Jesus Velarde, it's Jamal 
Shepherd. <laughs> and Jim Martin's not here because he continues recovering from surgery. Adam Matthew back there as our youth guy. Or perhaps someone who's sitting next to you. Track them down and say, I want to know Jesus. Because I promise you, that decision, that decision will change your life forever. The decision that Christ made changes everything. The decision we make changes everything for us. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to move in our midst in such a way that we'd be free. That we'd be restored. That we would place our trust in the one who came and lived and walked and went to a cross and then rose from the dead. Lord Jesus, thank you for making a decision in the garden that said yes to salvation. Thank you for making a decision that gives hope to all who turn to you. And Lord, as different people in this room right now are going through a variety of decisions, some big, some small, and perhaps they're under a lot of stress or not much stress at all, may it ring true in all our lives that you understand how to make a decision and that you want to walk with us through those decisions. Father, speak to us as we sing these songs. And may your Holy Spirit move in our midst in such a way that those who don't know you would say yes to you and that lives would be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand.